Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today's guest is the author of Soul for Happy. As a previous brainiac at Google, his book attempts to break happiness down into a formula that we can all put into practice. He wrote it following a terrible personal tragedy, which perfectly demonstrates his resilience and fiercely positive mindset. Among other things, we discuss divine mathematics. I didn't know this was a thing, but it is. The place for religion in our lives and overcoming bereavement. In fact, we went so deep that this is going to be a two-parter. So settle in and enjoy part one of my chat with the amazing Mo Gaudat. Hello, Mo. Hey. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to have you. I cannot wait to ask you all of these questions. I have many, many questions in my heart for you today. All right. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm only supposed to talk to you for 45 minutes, but I cannot imagine that that's even possible. I'm going to have to talk to you for at least three, four hours. <laughs> Do it. That would be my favorite day ever. So look, Wouldn't it be nice? Yes, do it. Seriously. Are, are, is, is it supposed to be 45 minutes and then you, you, you this is the limit of your uh, podcast time? Well, they just tell me that they're like, Joss, you can't talk forever, love. People get bored. You've <laughs> yeah. got to turn off after 45, but it's impossible sometimes, especially with somebody as interesting as yourself. Oh my God, thank you. So I, on my podcast, uh, I was recording Dan Siegel. Do you know Dan Siegel? Dan is a very good friend. He's a, a scientist, like a, a very serious scientist who's also very uh, into happiness and spirituality and stuff like that. And so, uh, and I was under that impression of it has to be 45 minutes. And and when it was 45 minutes, I was like, uh, and Dan is a good friend. So I said, okay, Dan, you know what? Let's just finish now. And you and I can continue this chat for as long as we want. And he actually on the podcast said, why would you do that? And I said, you know, people don't want episodes that are more than 45 minutes. And he said, split it in two. We have 45 ah, more to go. And so that's a good idea. My, my top episodes, actually, all of them, my top 10, probably all of them have been two parts. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and we just keep You have going. so many little bits of, you know, gems of information that people, I'm sure, are just like glued to their on, on headphones. Slow, on slow-mo, I don't talk at all, actually. I try to talk as little as I can because my guests are just unbelievably amazing. You know, I've, I've been in the business world for a long time. I've been in the, you know, in, this, in the happiness world for even longer. And these are really good friends and people that are really, really, really different. They're, they have something each of them, and each is different, but if they, each of them has something that will completely change your life. Isn't that and beautiful? It really is. And so uh, it's my favorite time of the week. I record like four times a week, and I'm 
and and we have now a backlog of like 40 episodes from how much I'm addicted to recording. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's good to talk, isn't it? Especially with people that have the agenda of helping people feel better. There you go. This happiness world you speak of, because I guess I've just walked into it. I've always felt like I've been in a happiness world of my own. But now we're looking into it in a deeper way, trying to kind of explain it, which is really hard. I didn't realise there were so many big brains in it. It's not just hippies meditating. These are scientists. These are people that studied. Also hippies meditating. So, so look. A little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, li- life is an interesting journey. Yeah? Life is, is, a, is a path where each of us stumbles upon a few things and, you know, from those learns something and then mixes with certain people. And, and every one of us is different eventually, right? But but when you bring it all together, I you know, it's, it's like sifting through, you, you know, you remember the gold rush, the image of the gold rush where people are just sifting through tons of sand to find one gold nugget. That is the idea. The idea is if you look at happiness from one rigid point of view, it's like, you know, you have to do it from a religious point of view or a spiritual point of view or a scientific point of view, psychiatry, psychology, uh, positive psychology, self-love. Everyone will have a view. What What I try to do is to try to say, well, all views are accurate. Okay, all views are just different perspectives of the same topic. And and suddenly it starts to be so eye-opening. I mean, again, Dan was talking about overlaps between physics and happiness, right? Uh, Rick Hansen was my guest, actually, we're probably publishing in a couple of weeks, and also a very good friend. Rick, Rick is a serious neuroscientist and at the same time a devout Buddhist. And so you overlap them and you get a very unusual view. And And, and it's all of that, when you put all of that together... It starts to make sense. Huh? It starts, and and then your take on happiness, the Joss version, will be different than all of us. You speak about um, an algorithm that you came up with to kind of help people be happy. Can you explain a little bit to me about that? Because it's kind of computer talk. In a way, are we a computer? We are. Yes. I mean, in look, every everything. Uh, is sold to us in the modern world as complex and as if it needs external uh, support to happen, right? So, you know, if you if you look around you within a radius of 10 kilometers, there must be like 100,000 personal trainers telling you that they're the only ones that figured out how you can have a nice bum or six pack, right? And the truth is, you know, they have to overcomplicate it for you because it's basically they're, you know, to a hammer, everything is a nail. They're like into the tiniest of details. But the truth is fitness is very straightforward. If you make it your priority and work out four to five times a week, you're done, you're fit. It's maths really, isn't it? It really is. And happiness is the same. Happiness is is sold to us as this very complex, elusive thing that you'll never be able to find. It's hyper predictable. And when when I started to look for an algorithm, believe it or not, it was actually computer talk because I was very, very happy until age 26. Married my college sweetheart, madly in love, uh, had a beautiful child, then, you know, a beautiful son, then a beautiful daughter. Uh, and, then, and then somehow I started to, when, I, when the kids came to our life, I started to get serious about work. I started to trade in the stock market. I'm mathematically reasonably good. We became very rich. We had everything we can think of. And I was totally miserable. 
Okay. Oh, no. And in yeah, Why? I was like, oh, ex- exactly. And in my mind, doesn't make I, a lot of sense, does it? When we're told oh, success is happiness, it is all the sense in the world. In my happiness side of my life, I've trained dozens, if not hundreds, of billionaires, uh, and they are absolutely miserable. So sad. Yeah, it's the opposite of what people believe. People think that if you're rich, then you've got to be happy. Uh, Not at all. Not at all. Which actually is where the happiness equation comes in. I have everything in life at around age 30 and I'm miserable. And I started to wonder why. I mean, how can that be? If you have everything, how can you be miserable? And what is missing is that happiness is actually not a result of what life gives you at all. Okay. Life, Life would give you rain and you would be happy if... You know, if you want to water your plants, you would be unhappy if you want to suntan, right? Rain has no inherent happiness result, you know, happiness value in it. I was locked down in London and, you know, when it rained, I'm a Middle Eastern and I'm, I have a bald head. So I panic. Like to me, <laughs> rain is like, and to you guys, you're like, huh? yeah, you know, the Brits would walk through like as if nothing happens. Right. And, and so there is no inherent value of negativity or positivity in rain. It is a comparison between that event or your perception of it, if you want, and what you want life to be, what life gives you minus what you want life to be. Your expectations. Exactly. And that is what happiness is. So put it in an algorithm, your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be. Should we lower our expectations Oh, there somewhat? you go. There you go. All... All top achievers do that. Ask that question immediately when I say the equation. (laughs) Well, it's such a negative sentence, isn't it? To say, I would like to lower my expectations, but I have had this sentence going round and round in my head since I was like nine. I remember exactly where I was. I was in school and they were reading something and I was being told off for not listening. In this book, um, it was read by the teacher. It said, um, expect the worst and you shall never be disappointed. And it just kept ringing in my head and not in a negative way, but in just a very helpful way, actually. It's okay if things go not the way that you want them to go. And if they go great, then you can be elated by that. Is that what you're saying with these expectations making us sad? It is true, actually. I say this sentence differently, by the way, and I believe it wholeheartedly. I say, accept the worst, but don't expect it. When you accept it, whatever happens in your life on top of that is going to please you. It's going to make you happier. Your, your question is, would lowering my expectations make me happy? Of course. Go to India and you'd, you'd see it with your own eyes. Huh? Go to Syria and you'd see it with your own eyes. So in, in Syria, all that they would dream of today is that there will be no bombs. Okay. If there are no bombs, that's great. There has not been, yeah, there has not been bombs in London for um, over 70 years now. And people don't see that as a plus. They don't recognize it as a thing to be joyful about, but it is joyful. Yes, exactly. Why? Because our expectations are like, yeah, that's normal. Uh, There shouldn't be bombs. And at the same time, there should be, uh, uh, you know, wonderful food and it should come on time and we shouldn't be locked down. And I should have a tall, blonde, wonderful, you know, partner in my life that is so impressive that everyone's going to envy me for, for it. And if any of that doesn't happen, 
then I'm going to be pissed. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I'm going to be the, livid. And what is the result? The result is you're torturing your own self. All you're the miserable. Time. Yeah. The question really becomes, should I not raise my expectations? But then how do I advance in life? I need to have expectations to advance in life. Hmm? No, you need to have ambitions to, to advance in life. These are different. When my wonderful son left the world and I started to go on that happiness uh, movement, I, I had a goal of 10 million happy. Okay. In my mind, you know, again, everything to me is math. So I basically calculated very quickly. I said, if I delivered his message to, to 10 million people within 60 to 70 years, within, with six degrees of separation, there will be a tiny part of him in everyone in the world. Right. And then we, we got to 10, to 10 million in less than six weeks. And so I started to review my objective. The little team we've assembled said, Mo, you're sandbagging like a, a good salesman would. And so basically, uh, you know, we need to increase the target. So we increased the target from 10 million to 1 billion. 1 billion people. Yeah, 1 billion happy is, is crazy. When you really think about it, I mean, it took Jesus 2,000 years to reach a billion people. And, you know, he, he was handsome and had an, a wonderful message. And, you know, it's like Jesus, right? I'm, who am I? I'm never going to reach a billion people. Okay, and in in reality, my ambition is different than my expectation. Hmm? So I, my ambition is I want a billion people, and I will aim for that for the rest of my life. Hmm? If I end my life with a million people, do you think I'm gonna kill myself and say this is a life wasted? Today I I make you guys, the people who are listening to us, happy. That's amazing. If I made you just that's all, you know everyone else got pissed with me, and you became happy. That's, it's an amazing result. That's expectation. It's, you, you understand? So, so now my expectation is realistic, but my ambition is high. I can go out in the world and attempt to achieve, but I don't have to feel disappointed if I don't get to a billion. Do you feel purpose is important to, to happiness, to have a purpose at all, or to at least feel like you have one? I request permission to speak freely. Please do. Okay, so this is the biggest, this is the biggest topic in the West, you know. The West produ productizes everything, including purpose, right? So we productize happiness and turn it into fun and parties. We productized, productize love and turn it into that romance and, and the look of what love really is in diamond rings. And, and we productize purpose. We basically say purpose is a point in the future that you will aim for uh, for most of your life, or at least for a period of your life. Like a destination, not a journey, kind of like happiness. Exactly. And, and it's like a destination. And so what happens is, once you define that point in the future, you're disappointed until you get to it, because you haven't got to it. And then when you get to it, boom, what do I do now? Suddenly, you, there is... Your no purpose is ongoing, though. There is no end. There is no end at all. It's like a circle. It just continues to totally. go around and, around. and when you really understand time... You start to tell yourself, how can how can purpose be a point in the future when there is really no future? So there was never a yesterday. You know that. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, because basically every time you, every moment in your life you call yesterday, when you lived it, it was called today. There will, there will never be tomorrow. So you'll never live tomorrow. But when tomorrow comes, you will still call it today. And so how can your purpose be future bound when and it's never going to happen your your purpose by by the me, by the meaning of the word purpose it should happen during your life and your life is now ambition can be targeted in the future a billion happy is a target in the future but that's not my purpose 
My purpose is to sit here, listen to you attentively, tell you what's in my heart as best as I can, attempt to make as many people as I can, you know, have a different view on life or maybe find a little more happiness. And that's my purpose. Okay, it's not a billion happy. It's not, you know, seven years before I die. It doesn't have to win a Nobel Prize. It, purpose is that minute by minute. So when my son Habibi was alive, he, he taught me quite a lot and he taught me in very interesting ways. And one of the things that taught me the most was when we played video games. Now, of course, you know, I try really hard to work on my ego, but allow me to brag and say I'm a very serious video gamer. Right? Are you? Oh, I'm very, very serious. I'm like Olympic champion level. Okay. okay. So, so, I can't imagine and, it. And I, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't either, to be honest. But That's uh, yeah. So funny. But but when I played with Ali, Ali was legendary. I wasn't. I wasn't as good when he was alive. Right. I was. I played heroic. He was legendary. He was much better than I am. And so I listened to him. Right. And when and when we play the game. Hmm, the strategic purpose-driven, uh, you know, engineer that or businessman that I am would go, turn right at the beginning of the level and run as fast as I can. And Ali would put Ali would put his controller down and go like, "Papa, what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Ali, the the purpose of the game is there. The end of the level is there." Uh, and he would go like, "Who wants to get to the end of the level? We're playing." good point. And he says, when you get to the end of the level, you can't play the level anymore. And when you really think about it... Huh? Oh, what a lovely way of looking at yeah, it. Isn't this life? Huh? You want to get to the end of the level, you die. Like, how smart is that? His view, interestingly, however, is he would then turn left and go to the hardest part of the game. There are explosives and smoke and enemies, and right? And I go like, why are you going there, Ali? And he says, this is where all the fun is. This is when, when life becomes interesting is when you're challenged. Now, he taught me so much. He would simply say, this is where you develop and grow. This is where you find your life's purpose. And so you ask, what is a life purpose? For a gamer, and we're all gamers in the game of life, your life's purpose is to become the best gamer you can become. The reason why after Ali died, I, I started to move from heroic to legendary and now I'm really good at the games is because I no longer want to achieve anything. I play with the purpose of, oh, that shot wasn't perfect. Let's do that again. Okay. Let's, you know, oh, you're in the moment. You're yeah, in the now. Exactly. Exactly. Huh? You know, that, that bit of the game was challenging, but I overcame it. Oh my God, that's amazing. Let's not move forward. Let's play it again. So Ali still is, he's still living in you and in all of your work and in every time you play a game. Yeah, I think he lives everywhere. You said something um, about he came to you two days before he died and asked you to do this or asked you to continue working. Yeah, just for people to know. So he died of a medical malpractice or negligence, if you want. So it was totally out of the blue. He wasn't poorly or anything. No, no, he was perfectly okay. And then his appendix was inflamed. So they prescribed an, a simple, simple, it's the simplest surgical operation known to humankind. And yeah, he, the surgeon did five mistakes in a row. All of them were preventable. All of them were fixable. The question becomes, is it any different if Ali would have died this way or another way if he had died 20 years later or five years earlier? 
you know, and, and these are really, really the deep questions because if he had died 20 years later, I would have felt exactly the same. I would have still begged for one more day. Now, he, here is the interesting thing. So he didn't know he was dying, but he knew. There was so many signs, so many signs that he knew because he literally sat us down four days before he died. And he started to literally, like an old grandfather, dictate his will. If you want to imagine Ali, imagine a little, a, a very handsome, tall Yoda. Okay. Oh. So he, yeah, he really, he really didn't talk much at all. That sounds sweet. And when he spoke, oh my God, you had to listen. It was worth listening it's, to. Absolutely. Yeah. But then, but then when he, when, this time we were having lunch in an Italian restaurant and he started to speak and he spoke for 45 minutes and it's the first time and the last time ever. Hmm? And that was very out of character for him. Very out of character. Every word was a ton of gold. So he looked at me, looked at my daughter, looked at my wife then. And he, he basically said to each of us, looking us in the eyes, making us cry how much he loved us, how, how grateful he was to have had us in his life, what things he learned from us that made him the person that he is. And then at the end of it, like for 10, 15 minutes, when you're like, I love you, I really love you, he would say but there are a couple of things I want you to do for me, okay? And for me, from me, he said, Papa, I want you to never stop working, but I want you to start doing things that count on your heart a little more often. You have no idea how timely that was. I'm a professional. At the time, I was the chief business officer of Google X. Massive, massive, massive job, very enjoyable highly regarded across the world. And at the time, I was actually considering seriously if I want to work much longer. And he basically said, never stop working, but work from your heart. And then four days after he left, his sister, I I always get emotional when I, uh, his his sister came to me and said he had a dream. And his dream, he told her, was I was everywhere and part of everyone. And he said, it felt so amazing that I didn't want to be back in my body. And so my my daughter comes and tells me this four days after he dies and she's crying. And in my blurry mind after the event, all I could hear, all I could hear was, again, remember, I'm a businessman. I'm very target oriented. All I could hear was my master, my teacher, my best friend and my son giving me a target. In my mind, immediately, I I got up and I said, consider it done, Habibi. At the time, I was at Google. You know, before I was at Google X, I was, you know, vice president of emerging markets at Google. It was responsible for the next four four billion users, we called it. So I knew how to get things to a billion people, right? And so when he said everywhere and part of everyone, I was like, yeah, I do that all the time. Consider it done. And And then suddenly I find myself writing 12 hours a day, while working at Google. So I would literally write between meetings. You must have been up all hours. When did you sleep? I sleep very little in general, but also I was so, it was such an unusual experience. This book, I promise you, and I know a lot of authors say this, I promise you I'm worthless. I can't write this, okay? This book was definitely written through me. I would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning, 4.11 Damn you, Ali, every morning at 4.11. I would write for an hour, okay? And sometimes I'm so tired, so I go back to sleep. And then I forget that I wrote. And then I wake up two days later, 
look at my, on my desktop and I find the game analogy, for example, was written at 4.11, one, one evening, three pages long in the book. Sounds a lot like the Bible. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, but you'll be surprised. There is so much we don't know. You know, I'm, I'm quite religious, huh? and I know people laugh when I say that. I am quite religious. What's your, what's your religion? A, a really, good, really good question. So I was born a Muslim. Uh, I became uh, agno- agnostic. I became agnostic at, uh, at age 16. And then I did the weirdest thing ever. I did something I called the mathematics of the divine. No, it's not a belief. I don't have a belief that the divine exists. I have mathematics that, 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 that basically say there is something. My religion is the following. I try to look for that beautiful core. Hmm? So if I, if, I, if I gave you four apples and three of them were rotten and one was good, you don't throw away the one that's good. Okay? Most of us will go like, oh, three apples are rotten, let's throw the whole bag. No, you keep the good one. Hmm? So I'm trying to build a, I'm trying to make a fruit salad if you want. I go to Christianity, I find the beautiful, beautiful strawberries, and then I add them to the apples that are in Islam. And then, so I studied Sufism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Yeah, and I find beauty in all of them. Have you created your own? Mostly in my practice, I comply to two or three. Of course, because of the habits you build when you're young, I comply more probably to Islamic practice, right? But it's not very different. Hmm? It's not very different than all of the others. They're all so similar. They're all so similar. So there is a different layer that is known as spirituality. And spirituality is your ability as a human to acknowledge that you're made up of two parts. One is that, that is physical and the other that is not physical. And being spiritual is to be able to connect to more than your physical form. ACAST recommends LGBTQ plus creators who are making an impact this month and beyond. Tune in for your new favorite show. Hey, what's up? I'm Sean T. And I wanted to tell you that my podcast, Trust and Believe, is all about uplifting you to the next level of who you are. Whether it's a solo soul with me telling you about things that are happening in my life and how to get through them, or if it's with one of my amazing guests, at the end of every show, you will learn the tools that you need to push through just to get through another day or maybe another month. It doesn't matter what you're going through. You can always come to my show to feel great about yourself, to always believe in yourself, and at the end of the day, know that you are your power. So join us on the show and get ready to trust and believe. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Right? To, to associate with more than your physical form. When my wonderful, handsome, incredibly wise uh, son lost that element that was like the, the non-physical element of him, he suddenly turned from that amazing being to a piece of meat. Okay, And I know it sounds horrible, but that's true. That part of him maybe, but not, not him. Exactly. So, so the part that left him was him. And the, the part that was left behind, the physical form, wasn't just the case exactly yeah. wasn't anymore now n- then you go to talk about the divine when you say divine you mean the omnipotent all-powerful god i try to avoid the brand god because the brand god gets a lot of association and and i and i also try to avoid describing it for a very important reason because it's non-physical 
one of the approaches you can take to, to, to think about the divine. And, and this is my interpretation. An intricate designer is the opposite of randomness. Uh, four, uh, four pillars fall uh, and then they hit a tree and a car is parked on the side and there will be a shape and that shape will have happened because of that randomness. Or you can actually construct a home that is made of walls and they are, these are two opposites. And, and the idea is because they're opposites, they're either a one or a zero. Something that is designed is not random and something that is random is not designed. And you can calculate the probabilities of that. Okay, this is code. It really is, and and the idea is: can you calculate the probability of our universe having come to existence randomly, totally zero, in, including everyone that every scientist will ever tell you around evolution and Big Bang and so on? Okay, the the reality is: yes, uh, if you give if you give a monkey a typewriter and tell them to write War and Peace, one of those attempts that the monkey will go through will actually develop war and peace. Mathematically, it's possible. But how long will it take? And that's where most people who talk about the science of evolution and Big Bang and so on will, talk, will forget is, do we have time to perform that task? And everyone knows that the universe is 13.7 year, uh, billion years old, that, the, that planet Earth is 3.9 billion years old. It's actually quite manageable you said something in one of your talks you said suffering is self-generated pain yeah. suffering is a choice yeah, it's the netflix of unhappiness yeah so why do we choose it like consistently yeah so so look i mean go back to the happiness equation events minus expectations okay if you, if you don't mind me saying huh Everyone is, uh, you know, many, many people in the UK now are very upset because we are now locked down again. You know, it's horrible in so many ways. If you look at this objectively, all of the suffering, you can suffer forever, but suffering, like hitting your head against the wall and feeling unhappy is not going to make any difference. It doesn't help. It, it only hurts and then it gets worse and then there's a terrible circle of pain. But then the even more interesting question is, can we look at the truth, please? Let me be annoying here and just say this. I'm, I'm 53. I was born in 1967. This is the very first pandemic I've ever lived through. Now, if I was, if I was born in 1900, uh, I would have seen uh, World War I, uh, um, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War II, and smallpox before I reached age 50. Okay? Those combined would have killed 900 million of a, of a world population of 1.7 billion or something like that, which basically means one of every two people you know would die. Compare, compare that to our truth. If you have not been diagnosed yourself with COVID-19 and feeling very sick, if you haven't lost someone that you love, okay, and if you haven't lost your job and economically livelihood to the point that you're unable to survive uh, at all, okay, then the only way you can look at the current situation is to say, Oh my God, I'm fortunate. Oh my God, this is amazing. I mean, there is so much suffering in the world and I'm so lucky, right? Then right now, the extent of this pandemic to you is you're being forced to stay at home and binge watch Netflix. This is it. You're, you're being forced to slow down, which 
is something you talk about a lot on your slow-mo podcast. And that, that has to be a good thing for your body and for your mind. I think slowing down can be beautiful. Slowing down is always beautiful, as a matter of fact. But that's the point. Huh? The point is, can we actually somehow, instead of the Netflix of unhappiness, as I call it, huh? the constant repetition of things that annoy us, that make no difference to our life whatsoever, other than torturing us, hmm? Can we actually go sit down and say, look, seems like I'm going to be locked down until December, okay? Seems that this is a fact that I, for example, lost my job or whatever. Hmm? It seems that it's a fact that uh, I may not be able to meet people in person for a while. What can I do about it? How can I make it better? If I cannot invent a vaccine and take all of this away, if I cannot have a cup of tea with Boris Johnson and convince him that it's time for us to go, okay, what can I do? And this is what I... Where's the silver absolutely. lining? And so what I did, I, you know, I'm, I'm driven on a mission to deliver happiness to as many people as I can. The three weeks after the lockdown, right after the lockdown, I was supposed to go to seven countries and go around the world two and a half times to speak about happiness. Would have been Not nice. A, you can do that another time. We can, or we can start a podcast, right? And so I go, yeah, you can get to people in other exactly, ways now, right? So, so I sat, I sit down and I ask myself, can I feel disappointed now? Yes, okay, let's feel disappointed for ten minutes and then say, okay, what are we going to do about it? And so, what very proactive? Yeah, what did I do about it? I started slow mo. Slow mo now is in in the top ten percent of podcasts worldwide. Okay, it delivers Amazing. absolutely, it, and it delivers more messages of happiness than I would have ever dreamt of if I was running around the world like a bee trying to to speak to 5,000 people here and 2,000 people there, right? You just have to ask yourself, hmm, what can I do? Because this is what unhappiness is. Huh? If unhappiness is events minus expectations. If you really understand what it is, unhappiness is a survival mechanism. It's your brain telling you something's not perfect. You need to consider it and take the right action. Like any pain. Like any pain. But the difference is pain happens from outside us. And when, it's, and when you address it, it goes away. Unhappiness is self-generated. It's, you know, it's your partner telling you something annoying on Friday. Then on Saturday, you repeat it again. Ah, oh, remember that clip from two o'clock? I like that. It makes me feel horrible. Let's play that again. Yes. Why do we do that? That is completely insane. And then on sun, on Monday, you start to say, it must be because he doesn't love me anymore. Then on Tuesday, you say, it's because I'm fat and so on. And you start to like punch yourself in the face every day and then go, I don't know why I'm so sad. Why? Because you're bringing it up over and over again. If there is a fire alarm in the room, if there is a fire alarm in the room, what do you do? Do you sit there and go like, okay, let's play that sound again? No, you, you leave. You, you try and get the thing to shut up. Is exactly, what you, do. <laughs> you, you, you leave the room so you're safe, okay? And the noise yeah, goes yeah, away. Yeah. It's very straightforward. When when people come to me and say, "I broke up with my boyfriend," you know what I say? Mm. I say, what "I say, say congratulations. It's amazing." <gasps> A friend of mine said that to me once. It was really, it really kind of knocked me. I was crying in tears, and I did say it was me that broke up, and I said to him. Oh, I've broken up with him and I don't know if I made the right decision. I miss him and it's all... I was really upset and he goes, Jossie, be happy about it. This is good. You did this. You did it for a reason. Be happy. And I was like, oh, fucking hell. I should be <laughs> yeah. happy. Congratulations because the fact that you broke up means it wasn't working. And that means it was taking a toll on your stress levels and in your happiness and so on. 
And by the way, there is 3.9 billion others to try now. It's like, whoa, the, the yeah, world has just you get opened. The beginning yeah, again. the world has just opened up. There are going to be butterflies in your stomach soon. And then there is that passionate sex of the first few weeks. And then, you know, the, the, the whole getting close and discovery for the first few months. It's wonderful, right? And that's one other way to look at it, by the way. Huh? It's not the only way to look at it, but one way is to say, oh my God, new opportunities, new experiences. You know, I, I, you know, I can enjoy something I haven't enjoyed before and this was not working out. Or you can tell yourself, oh, I miss how he, how he always miss, you know, abused me. Like, why, why, <laughs> why would you do that? I know. You've got to break it down and be like, what is it that you actually miss? Relationships don't break up because they are, they are going fabulously. They break up because they, they aren't good. Yeah, rela relationships are broken until we make them. It's like building a house, if you want. It's funny, isn't it? How we kind of, I think we often put our happiness in the hands of other people. And I don't know how smart that is. Stupid.